Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, May 24th, 2011, also known as Spiritual Doomsday Plus Three. Oh man, the Herald camping thing is... I can't believe anybody takes this guy seriously, but we'll talk about this in a second. Still trying to make sure I got everything lined up for the program today. Good night. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There, people are saying stuff they ought not to be saying, and they're saying it in Christian pulpits, on Christian radio, uh, in books published by Christian publishers. It, 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 oh, man, it's nuts out there. And the whole Harold Camping thing, you know, talk about what goes around comes around, or as, as uh, Solomon once said, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, I, one of the things that struck me as I was listening to Harold Camping it, you know, kind of recalculate and recalibrate what's going on here. In case you haven't heard, uh, Harold Camping, rather than repent, which is what he needs to do, uh, has basically dug in his heels and uh, is claiming that Judgment Day actually did begin on May on May twenty first on Saturday. But it's it was spiritual Judgment Day. He's spiritualized the whole thing, and so now there's no objective way of verifying anything that he said. But uh, monitoring the uh, Yahoo group that the uh, campingites are running, oh, and and just kind of doing signal ops. Uh, you know, I'm I'm you know picking off their signals, and oh my goodness, I mean, I I have no other choice but to conclude that uh, Harold Camping is a cult leader. In the same genre, the same group that you would put Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witness cult. In fact, uh, the the similarities between uh, Harold Camping and Charles Taze Russell are um, well uncanny. They're they're stark. They're they're eye op- uh, they're eye opening. They're jaw dropping. It's it. Oh man, it's crazy. And, uh, I mean, same tactics, same mistakes, same everything. And, uh, 
And so, folks, if you know somebody who is listening to Harold Camping and, camping and believing him, they are believing a false gospel. They are believing a false co- gospel, and they are following a guy who's a complete spiritual wingnut and uh, a man who is not a Christian. I, there's, there is nothing, nothing Christian about Harold Camping at all. This man, it, 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 you should consider him to be as dangerous as somebody like um, Jim Jones, uh, you know, uh, the the guy who was in charge of the Hale-Bopp Comet uh, cult. I mean, that's how bad this is. In fact, you know what, what I'm going to do? Let, maybe what I should do is let's play for you some audio from a couple of the videos that are out there. And uh, this first one is from uh, AOL News and uh, worth passing along. And what we'll do is we'll you know play this for you so you can hear what's going on. Here's their report on this. I'm Christina Hartman for AOL News Now. For all of you who survived the rapture Saturday, you're not in the clear just yet, where Harold Camping, the rapture predictor, told a CBS reporter he was once so sure. Just in case this doesn't happen, can we do an interview with you the next day? It it is absolutely going to happen. That that was a CBS reporter basically saying, can we interview you the next day after if, if the rapture doesn't happen on May 21st? And that's he's saying it's absolutely going to happen. No way that I could schedule an interview because I won't be here. Now, Camping is changing his story. He publicly apologizes for the confusion during an interview with BBC. If if, if people want me to apologize, I can apologize. Yes, I did not have all of that worked out as accurately as as I should have or I wish I could have had it. Uh, Yeah, wait till you hear the full explanation. This is just kind of the overview. I'll play for you the BBC audio here in a second. That doesn't bother me at all because I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a genius. Although the world was not destroyed on May 21st as predicted, Camping tells NBC it was still the beginning of the rapture, just not in the physical way he expected. His explanation, Saturday marked an invisible judgment. The real end comes in five months. God brought judgment day and it will continue right up until... Uh, uh, October 21, 2011, and at that time, the whole world will be destroyed. This is Camping's third rapture prediction. Now, his 1994 and May 21st predictions have failed to produce results Camping advertised with similar reasoning. According to Fox News, he has said that his earlier apocalyptic prediction in 1994 didn't come true because of a mathematical error. Whether it is a coincidence Camping's mathematical skills have backfired both times, believers and non-believers had strong reactions to the failed prediction. One man shares his feelings with NBC. In Maryland, Gary Vollmer, a longtime listener who had prepared for the end to come Saturday, is angry. He never did really say anything about being wrong or, you know, what havoc he's caused. But some still have faith, and CNN reports the other responses of a few non-believers to Camping's prediction. Kids on YouTube rapped about rapture. R-E, rapture day, look right here, it's 6.02. I'm so odd, and so are you. In response to Judgment Day billboards, non-believers raised enough money to post a counter billboard in Greensboro, North Carolina, saying that was awkward. Despite the skeptics, Camping seems determined to have enough belief for all of us during his interview with the BBC. And yet the sense of it is still the same, that judgment has come. The world is now under judgment where it was not prior to May 21. Spiritually, there's a big difference in the world 
that we can't detect it all with our eyes, but we can know from the Bible. I'm Christina Hartman for AOL News Now. Okay, that was the AOL News report on this. Rather than play for the BBC one, I thought the Yahoo one from the Associated Press is slightly better in uh, its camping quotes. Um, yeah, here's um, Harold Camping. New date for Doomsday, October 21st from uh, the Associated Press. On May 21, 2011, we didn't feel any difference. We didn't see any difference in the world. But we know from the Bible that God brought Judgment Day to bear on the whole world. Yeah, that's Harold Camping. Uh, we can't see any difference in the world, but God brought Judgment Day on the whole world on May 21st, according to him. So he he wasn't wrong. He was right. It, it wasn't a physical rapture. It was a spiritual rapture. The whole world is under Judgment Day. And uh, this is it. Uh, and it will continue right up until uh, uh, October 21, 2011. And... Uh, at that time, the whole world will be destroyed. God had not opened our eyes yet to the fact that May 21 was a spiritual coming, uh, whereas uh, uh, we had thought it was a physical coming, but he has come. He has come in a sense that he now has the world under judgment. If, if, if people want me to apologize, I can apologize. Yes, I did not have it. That all of that worked out as actively as, it, as I should have, or I wish I could have had it. Uh, that doesn't bother me at all because I, I, I'm not a, I'm not a genius. You can say that again. And I, I do. I pray all the time for wisdom, and and when I make an error, then I make, I say yes, I was wrong. But I don't. I can't be responsibility of anybody's life. I, I'm only teaching the Bible. I'm not teaching what I believe or, or that, as a, as that I'm the authority. I'm simply telling this is what the Bible says. And I, and I don't have spiritual rule over anybody except my wife. So there you go. That's uh, from the Associated Press's video coverage of Harold Camping preparing for yesterday's edition of Open Forum. Um, so what's, what's happened? Well, apparently we're all under spiritual judgment. Uh, my recommendation, uh, for those campingites out there that are feeling a little bit disillusioned, I mean, the donation button is still up there at, uh, familyradio.com. Um, I think they should only support him with spiritual dollars moving forward. Um, only send him spiritual coins and, um, Unbelievable. I mean, seriously, those of you who uh, are familiar with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the uh, the history of the Jehovah's Witness cult, um, they're uh, they're um, well, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, let's just say they're known for some of their failed prophetic predictions. In fact, one of the most famous ones uh, was uh, that uh, that you know, nineteen fourteen was when Jesus was supposed to return, and well. That kind of came and went, and so the Jehovah's Witnesses have come up with a very cockeyed uh, understanding of uh, 1914, and basically that something spiritual happened. You can't see it in the physical realm, but Jesus did something spiritually uh, in in 1914, uh, and um, uh, and you know actually it was October of 1914. And in fact, let me read to you from the um, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower.org website. 
from their book, What Does the Bible Really Teach? Appendix, they have an appendix there regarding 1914. Listen to this and tell me if this doesn't sound like the Campingites. Uh, decades in advance, Bible students proclaimed that there would be significant development developments in 1914. What were these and what evidence points to 1914 as such an important year? Well, as recorded at Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the nations until the appointed times of the nations, the times of the Gentiles, are fulfilled. Jerusalem had been the capital city of the Jewish nation, a seat of rulership of the line of the kings from the house of King David, Psalm 48, 1 and 2. However, the kings were unique among national leaders. They sat on Jehovah's throne as representatives of God himself. Jerusalem, thus a symbol of of Jehovah's rulership. How and when, though, did God's rulership begin to be trampled on by the nations? Well, this happened in 607 BCE when Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. Jehovah's throne became vacant, and the line of kings who descended from David was interrupted. Would this trampling go on forever? No, for the prophecy of Ezekiel said regarding Jerusalem's Jerusalem's last king, Zedekiah, remove the turban and lift off the crown, and it will certainly become... Uh, no one's until he who comes has a legal right, and I must give it to him. That's Ezekiel 21, verses 26 and 27. The one who has a legal right to the Davidic crown is Jesus, is Christ Jesus. So the trampling would end when Jesus became king. When would that grand event occur? Well, Jesus showed that the Gentiles would rule for a fixed period of time. The account in Daniel chapter 4 holds the key to knowing how long that period would last. It relates to a prophetic dream experienced by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He saw an immense tree that was chopped down. Its stump could not grow because it was banded with iron and copper. An angel declared, let seven times pass over it. In the Bible, trees are sometimes used as re- to represent rulership. So the chopping down of the symbolic tree represents how God's rulership as expressed through the kings at Jerusalem would be interrupted. However, the vision served notice that this trampling of Jerusalem would be temporary, a period of seven times. How long a period is that? Well, Revelation chapter 12, verses 6 and 14 indicates that three and a half times equals a thousand, two thousand, and sixty days. Seven times would therefore last twice as long, or uh, 2,520 days. But the Gentile nations did not stop trampling on God's rulership a mere 2,520 days after Jerusalem's fall. Evidently, then, this prophecy covers a much longer period of time. On the basis of Numbers chapter 14, verse 34, and Ezekiel 4, verse 6, which speak of a day for a year and seven times would cover... 2,520 years. The 2,520 years began on October in October 607 BCE when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians and the Davidic king was taken off of his throne. The period ended in October of 1914. At that time, the appointed times of the nations ended and Jesus Christ was installed as God's heavenly king. Jesus, uh, just as Jesus predicted, his, quote, presence as heavenly king has been marked by a dramatic by dramatic world developments war famine earthquakes and pestilences such developments bear powerful testimony to the fact that that 1914 indeed marked the birth of God's heavenly kingdom and the beginning of the last days of this present wicked system of things 
Yeah, Charles Taze Russell, who um, much in much the same way as Harold Camping, was very disillusioned by the, the churches of his time and organized religious systems, um, used radio, of all things, to... Uh, to well to give his unique biblical interpretations and uh he was known as a date setter and uh he predicted that Jesus would return in October of 1914 and wouldn't you know it Jesus didn't show up and so the Jehovah's Witnesses kind of changed their story and their story is is that well it, it uh, uh, in October of 1914 Jesus wasn't supposed to return to physical earth no 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 that's when he became the legal King, he he started sitting on the throne of his heavenly or spiritual kingdom. Sounds very eerily similar to what we're hearing Harold Camping do. Um, this man, who's literally caused by his false teaching, caused you know untold numbers of fortunes to be spent, hundreds of millions of dollars spent. Uh, people's life savings depleted and wiped out, all in preparation for the May twenty first date. Well, uh, you know, he where he was stunned and kind of a, kind of in a in a stupor on Sunday, uh, May twenty first. On Monday, he comes to the radio and declares that, oh well, Judgment Day actually did begin on, on uh, May twenty first. And to give you a sample of what it is the Campingites believe regarding this, let me read to you something from the um, the Campingite group. Um, that's on Yahoo. And uh, somebody asked the question, is the gospel commission over? If so, what is the purpose of Family Radio Incorporated ministry after May 21st, 2011? Uh, if the world's under judgment, the the logical question that the folks are asking, you know, that are campingites is, well, can any, uh, you know, uh, is there any point in preaching the gospel? Can anyone be saved after this date? Uh, apparently not. Uh, let me read an interesting note that stated that our understanding of the timeline was indeed correct and that May 21 was indeed Judgment Day spiritually and that October 21 will be the rapture and the destruction of all this world all at once. These next five months, 153 days, are a trial, a testing period to reveal his elect are indeed evidencing their salvation. For the non-elect, the door closed and no more salvation is possible after May 21st, 2011. We must remember that we had no idea that the church age ended on May 21, 1988. No idea that the latter reign began on September 7th, 1994, because they were all spiritual events. This would follow in step with Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011, as being spiritual in nature. So Spiritual Judgment Day began on May 21st. Uh, another important point to consider is that the five months of horror and suffering for those that are left behind does not seem to identify with the mercy of God and that they should suffer more than the unsaved dead have throughout history. This understanding is just coming into view, and it certainly makes tremendous sense. Let us keep on searching the scriptures and by God's mercy be given a better understanding of October 21st as being the rapture and the end of this world. If we let the Bible guide us in understanding how God writes, then we can see that the five months of the flood can point to five months of horrible spiritual conditions of no salvation. Just like the destruction of Judah in 587 B.C., the flood of 499 B.C. points to a horrible spiritual condition. In summary, we see a variety of passages that God talks about diseases and destruction 
to refer to the present condition of the unsaved man before God. That is because it is an awful present disease and destruction for mankind that he is separated from God who created him. Therefore, the presence of this kind of language in Genesis 7 is not a proof of literal destruction during the five months of 2011. We also have to keep in mind that the flood is applied in a parabolic way to Judgment Day. There will be no, uh, there will be a literal flood of water at Judgment Day. It could be that May twenty first, twenty eleven, focuses on upon the door of the ark being shut, uh, all of uh, with all of the true believers in it. The ark represents the Lord Jesus. It could be that the focus of May twenty first, twenty eleven. In God's plan is that the last day of salvation, the day after uh, there will be no more salvation, for there be uh, for for there to be more possibility of salvation anywhere in the world is a most horrible condition for unsaved mankind. The destruction of languages in Genesis seven would be like the language of Isaiah chapter one verses four through seven in describing the corporate people of God without salvation. The destruction. Destructive language of Genesis 7 could be pointing to a time without any possibility of salvation anywhere in the world. So um, there you have it. Uh, what is it that's gone, gone on here? What, is, what has happened? What has gone down? Well, um, Harold Camping, who seems to be cut from the same cloth or listening to the same demonic voice, as Charles Taze Russell has well taken a playbook, a play out of the Jehovah's Witness playbook. When Jesus doesn't show up as predicted, you spiritualize the event. And now the uh, campingites are basically taking Harold Camping's marching orders, his bizarre interpretations of the Bible uh, as being the truth, and they believe now on, on Saturday, May 21st, the world came into judgment spiritually and that the spiritual rapture took place and that now salvation is not possible for anybody. There will be no new Christians born in the next five months between now and October 21st, 2011, and uh, instead, uh, Harold Camping and uh, Family Radio is going to spend the next five months helping to encourage and give strength to and, and feed uh, those few people out there who uh, who understand those few saved people who you know at this point have to endure the next five months waiting for the end of the world on October twenty first. 2011. Absolutely a nut job. That's the only way to describe Harold Camping, a complete spiritual wingnut. This man is a cult leader. This the Family Radio is a station that broadcasts cult messages the same way the Watchtower does, the same way the Mormons do, uh, the same way the Rashikrushans or the Hari Krishnas do. It's it same thing that's going on here. We're not when we're looking at people who are swept up in the campingite movement, these are people who are not being taught the Christian biblical gospel. They're being taught a false gospel, a false teaching by a false prophet who will not repent but con- continues to persist in his sin. It reminds me of Pharaoh. I mean, when you remember when uh, Moses went to Pharaoh, let my people go. Yeah, um Moses goes to Pharaoh, and uh, what happens is there, um, it, 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 we got these horrible words. Um, it says that uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And this occurs for the first few times that Moses and Aaron go and chat with Pharaoh. And each time uh, Pharaoh hardens his heart, God sends a plague. And then something uh, really 
really uh, fascinatingly bad happens in the text, and that is is that uh, the text then changes and it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. With Harold Camping, we are dealing with a hard-hearted, schismatic cult leader. Uh, rather than repent, rather than say, I was wrong, he's basically saying, I'm right. And uh, now judgment has come upon the world and, uh, you know, whatever. Get what I'm saying. We're going to take a break. Uh, during our uh, during our break, we're going to uh, preview the uh, uh, premiere of the uh, the next um, Marty Python's Flying Circus Church, uh, we've got another new one, it's in, and it's entitled um, Emergent Poetry. And that's what it's entitled. And uh, when we come back, we're going to be listening to uh, Walter Martin. Uh, I'm going to play about maybe 17 minutes, 17 to 20 minutes of uh, Dr. Walter Martin um, giving a lecture on the Jehovah's Witnesses cult. And the reason I'm doing that is because the parallels between the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Campingites, I'm telling you, I am telling you, the uh, the parallels are stunning. We're dealing with the exact same kind of thing. And uh, it's it's time to call a spade a spade. Harold Camping is a cult leader. It's the it's same in the same, same, same group of men as Charles Taze Russell, Joseph Smith, and Muhammad. That's what we're dealing with here and it's time for us to face the music and understand that's what we're up against. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to um, email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. And now presenting for your listening pleasure, Majestic Mystery by Brian McLaren, read by Reginald Bumper Scatter. Oh, majestic mystery. Oh, mysterious majesty. My small hand can never grasp you. I can only hold it open. I don't like this at all. Majestic mystery. I think I'm going to be sick. Mysterious. He's saying words, but I'm not even sure it's English. Small mind. Ah! 
My appendix just turned inside out. Someone help that poor man and call the paramedics. What's all this then? That poor man appendix is just turned inside out. Well, that doesn't sound good. It's not every day that people appendixes do that. What was he doing? Listening to the emergent poet on stage. He didn't tell me there was emergent poetry being read. Right. Everybody evacuate the building immediately. Seals. What seems to be the trouble? Somebody in that building is reading emergent poetry. Have you set up a soundproof perimeter? No, I haven't had time. Oh, we can't help you then. What do you mean you can't help us? Too dangerous. Too, too dangerous? Don't get cheeky with me. You've seen but a small taste of emergent poetry's destructive power. It only gets worse with each passing stanza. Game over, dude! Game over! Quick, get that man into quarantine. His soul's been sucked out from his nostrils. Isn't there anything you can do to help that poor man? Afraid not. The only answer we have now is to nuke the site from orbit. Won't it open? It's open to you, fantastic mystery! Search the area and make sure no one's hiding in the refrigerator. We can't have any survivors. It's been nice serving with you, Chief. Likewise. I can't believe the world's come to this. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering you'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it download it and begin reading it immediately this is not a book that you're going to want to miss and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your in your library this is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again it's that good so what are you waiting for get your copy today We're back. Warning. Uh, every, uh, everybody who's predicted the end of the world uh, has come up 
wrong. And saying it was spiritual doesn't save your bacon. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. We truly depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. Uh, Currently in the month of May, we're trying to get uh, 350 new crew members uh, to join our crew in order to, you know, basically help us meet budget. Now, we haven't met our goal yet, but I'm happy to announce that we have officially crossed the one-third of the way there, Mark. If you haven't joined our crew yet, we truly, truly need your support and your help. It's only $6.95 a month, and the perks are that uh, when we publish books, you will you actually have access to them at no additional cost so that you can download them and read them and, and enjoy them. You also get discounts on uh, any limited edition merchandise that we make available. There really are uh, there's some perks to joining the crew, and uh, in fact, one of the things I'm working on, you know— <laughs> Trying to think, well, how many books have we got in the hopper right now? We got three in the hopper, and I, I'm trying to figure out which one is going to get finished next. I think what we're going to be doing is, if you're familiar with uh, Kretzmann's popular commentary, um, we're going to be taking the his commentary on the Book of Matthew and publishing it as an ebook, and only making this available for crew members. And it, we're hoping to have that out early in June. So. Stay tuned. Keep, yeah, I'll keep you posted on that. But you know, the only way you'll actually be able to get a copy of that is if you are a member of our crew. And the idea behind it is, is this, is that um, if you're—I'm trying to encourage you all to be good, serious Bible students using good, good scholarly <laughs> uh, biblical hermeneutics, uh, hermeneutics that actually rightly handles God's Word and looks at it for you know, the way it was intended to be understood, not allegorically, not symbolizing everything, not pouring weird things into it. No, in fact, um, it, it, when, you, when, when you read a commentary, and, and the reason I'm going to be doing this is a lot of laymen have never actually taken the time to read a commentary. Good ones are worth their are worth their weight in gold. And the nice thing about Kretzmann's popular commentary is that um is that it's written at a level that you know scholars and laymen can both appreciate. And um and you know and and so because it's in the public domain, you know, we're publishing it as an ebook and a Kindle. And it's actually keyed to the uh, King James version. And you're thinking, oh, I yeah. Trust me, it really actually doesn't get in the way. It, it'll it, it, in this particular sense, it's actually a strength for it because it. it what when you read a good lay level commentary, what it really requires you to do is to slow down. And, and if you think about it this way, if, if those of you who are mechanics, you talk about tearing down and you know and and pulling apart an entire engine and breaking it down into all of its little pieces and then rebuilding it. A good a good commentary blows a whole text apart into all of its little pieces and by doing that correctly it, then you can see how the whole works when you put it all back together and so we're going to be making that available in June but uh, you have to be a member of our crew in order to uh, in order to for you know to get that into your hands uh, in in a in a usable format so that's what's coming up in June uh, I'll talk about other books later but uh, so if you know the, the, that there's perks to being a member of our crew. I mean, we really the the goal here is is to help you in your study of scriptures. I'm not interested in giving you my unique interpretations or and I don't really I'm not a big fan of biblical numerology and stuff like that. I think it's a better idea to be in dialogue with through good books. Um the uh, the the fathers who have gone before us in the faith who have 
already shown because their life that well they're dead um that through their life that the, they weren't dissuade, they weren't steered away into bizarre things like Harold Camping, Charles Hayes Russell, uh, Joseph Smith and the like. And so anyway, we're going to be making that available hopefully early part of June and uh so join our crew visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the join our crew button or uh, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can click on the donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, as promised, uh, we're going to be give uh, this next segment. We're going to have the late Dr. Walter Martin giving us an introductory lecture to the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is from a lecture that he gave at a church entitled uh, Jehovah of the Watchtower, and the reason I'm playing this is because if you know your, if you know the Jehovah's Witnesses and their history, you will see that the the parallels between uh, the the early uh, Watchtowerites, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Campingites, uh, the parallels are uncanny. So uh, here's uh, the late Dr. Walter Martin. Tonight we're dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, the title of my book, which I wrote originally in 1953, was Jehovah of the Watchtower. It was the first expose of Jehovah's Witnesses. And when I took it to the publisher, the publisher told me that it was a great book, but unfortunately he couldn't print it. And I asked him why. He said, it's too controversial. And so, back in 1952, nobody wanted to deal with the cults in America. And as a result of that, we've got between 34 and 50 million of them crawling all over us in the United States and on our mission fields. And there's a vast number of them here in Canada right now. How many of you have been called on by Jehovah's Witnesses at one time or another? Wave at me. Look around you so you can see. Now, do you know how they accomplished that? They did a market study of all the major cities in the world. And then they designed a plan for calling on every home in each one of those cities three times a year. Jehovah's Witnesses call on more homes, start more Bible studies, and make more back calls than all of the denominations of the Christian Church combined in the United States or in Canada. They publish more material, Watchtower literature, in six months than the major presses of the Christian Church produce in a year. When they began publishing in 1879 with the first issue uh, of the Watchtower magazine, they printed 6,000 copies. They now print into the hundreds of millions of copies in more than 100 languages. Jehovah's Witnesses are to be admired, and we can learn a great deal from them because they are extremely dedicated. They know why they believe what they believe, and they are out there trying to get you to believe it also. They do not think that they are false prophets. They do not think that they are non-Christians. In fact, they believe that they are the only true Christians operating in the world right now, and that the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society is God's theocratic organization. Now, I'm going to point something out here. The Campingites, they actually believe that they're the only Christians in the world right now, and all the people who are in the churches today, you're not a Christian, according to the Campingites. So that's something that the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Campingites have in common. Which means it is the ruling organization of God on the earth. It was started by Charles Russell, who in the back of his clothing store in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, in the United States, in 1870, began a Bible study. 
Russell was disenchanted with Orthodox Christianity and had absorbed a considerable amount of material from the Advent movement, but particularly from the Christadelphians, a very small cult. It's still a small cult, but very influential. The Christadelphians denied the doctrine of the Trinity, the eternal deity of Jesus Christ, salvation only by grace, justification only by faith. They denied the personality of the devil and numerous other doctrines. Jehovah's Witnesses agree with the Christadelphians in a number of places. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity and call it satanic. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ and teach that Jesus was the Archangel Michael, the first and the greatest creation of Jehovah God. They have absorbed many views, ancient and modern, and amalgamated them into the Watchtower's structure. The founder, Russell, predicted the Battle of Armageddon and the destruction of all world governments in 1889 and said it would be in 1914. Did you catch that? That's exactly what Charles Taze Russell uh, predicted. The end of all the governments in Armageddon to be fought in October of 1914. When it didn't happen, they spiritualized the event and basically said that's when Jesus took, you know, you know basically was he was enthroned in, in, in heaven. It was a spiritual event rather than a physical event. He said that Jesus Christ had returned to earth invisibly in 1874 and in 1914 would overthrow the governments of the world and establish Jehovah's theocratic kingdom. Russell died in 1916, and, of course, the Battle of Armageddon had not come. They moved on from there to predict 1918 would be a time of great world conflagration. Instead, it was a time of world peace. They moved from there to 1922 and 1925 when they taught, and all of this in the name of God, they taught that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be resurrected to life. And the president of the Watchtower at that time, Judge Rutherford, bought a home, a palatial mansion in San Diego, California, and named it Beth Sarim, the House of Princes. And then he said it was built for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When they were resurrected, they could come and live there. When they didn't show up in 1925, he lived there. <laughs> he, however, deeded the house to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rutherford died in 1942, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's house was sold. So we now have a prophetic housing shortage in San Diego, should they arrive at any day. Now, when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses about their many prophecies of Armageddon, particularly when they said in, 19, in the early 1930s that they had learned to quit fixing dates, no more dates. And in 1941, they said, a few more months till Armageddon. Then they moved it up to 1975 in 1968. And when that didn't materialize, they lost 10% of their entire world membership because the people became disenchanted. So now they are juggling the figures again. And we are being told that the last living member of the 1914 generation uh, will be the time when we can expect Armageddon. When they made some changes in 1975, they said the reason for the miscalculation was because they had forgotten to take into account the time it took to create Eve and the animals. And as soon as they brought that in, that would adjust the prophetic calendar. We call them in the United States Armageddon Incorporated. 
because they spend all their time whipping up the troops on the Battle of Armageddon, but it does not materialize. One of the most interesting things that I have noted is that the present president of the Watchtower, Frederick W. Franz, who is now in his 90s, lost his nephew, Raymond Franz, who defected from the Watchtower board and the Watchtower organization and left them and wrote one of the most brilliant exposés of the Watchtower from the inside in existence. It's called Crisis of Conscience. And he points out that at the top levels of the Watchtower, when they were whipping up the Jehovah's Witnesses for Armageddon in 1974-75, that the people were encouraged to support the Watchtower and get out this great effort to carry the message to the end of the world, the ends of the earth, till our, for, to prevent Armageddon overtaking the great majority of mankind. So they were pushing, pushing, pushing. They were selling their homes. They were doing everything necessary to put in this last time before Armageddon. While the Watchtower was telling them to sell, support, and give, and sacrifice, Franz points out that the Watchtower organization had a portfolio of stocks and bonds on Wall Street in excess of $300 million, and they weren't selling. They were buying, buying, buying in 1975. The leadership of the Watchtower organization didn't care about the people. It didn't believe its own predictions. And that's why Jehovah's Witnesses have been consistently misled. There's a difference between Jehovah's Witnesses and the Watchtower. The Watchtower is God's theocratic organization that rules them with a rod of iron. And if you disobey the Watchtower, you are disfellowshipped. Like that. You are cut off from your friends, from your family, from your past acquaintances. It is as if you were an Orthodox Jew who became a Christian. Your name is cursed, and you are no longer numbered among the Jews. You're dead as far as they're concerned. This is exactly the Watchtower's philosophy. That's why it's so difficult for Jehovah's Witnesses to leave the organization, because it costs so much to do so. And there are ex-Jehovah's Witnesses here tonight who know what it's like to be disfellowshipped. You can't leave honorably. Because if you leave honorably, they generate stories about you that you are an unfaithful witness, immoral, and so forth. So that no matter what you do, you always end up on the wrong side of the ledger. The Watchtower organization is very powerful, very rich, very effective, and today there are some three million Jehovah's Witnesses and their associates, with more than 488,000 full and part-time missionaries carrying this message around the world. That's a lot of missionaries. When you consider the fact that the combined missionary force of the Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox churches is less than 110,000 missionaries, you are looking at one cult with an enormous missionary outreach. The fact that they're effective is testified tonight by the fact that you raised your hand. You were called on by them, and you will be called on by them again. They're zealous. They're dedicated. They're hardworking. They believe what they're doing, they know why, and they know what, and they are trying to get you to believe this. So do not think that this is a disorganized group of fanatics. It isn't. It's very sincere people who nonetheless are sincerely mistaken. They are sincerely wrong. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 describes them perfectly. If our gospel is obscured, it is obscured to those who are 
lost, in whom the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of them that believe not, so that the glorious light of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So you're dealing with people who are spiritually dead, according to Scripture, and mentally blind to the truth of the gospel. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness to him because they are spiritually discerned. You will find a common trait in all of the cults. If you get in there long enough and test it, you'll find it's true. They simply do not understand what God has said in his word. No matter how many times they read it, they simply don't understand it because somebody else is telling them what it means. The Watchtower organization is telling the Jehovah's Witnesses what the Bible means. The Mormon church is telling the Mormons what the Bible means. They're constantly telling them what it means, but the people themselves accept their leadership and they don't test it by the Word of God. As a result of that, they are genuinely shocked when the Lord touches them opens their eyes, and they see something they've never seen before. True, insightful words there from uh, Dr. Walter Martin, and something to take into consideration. I think we're seeing the exact same stuff coming from the Campingites. They are as dangerous and deluded and deceived as the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and other members of the cults. Pray for them, pray for them, pray for them. All right, one last thing I want to do here. I'm going to be reading a section of Kretzmann's popular commentary uh, on the concluding section from Rome, uh, from, not from Romans, but from Matthew chapter 7 uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the verses that are going to be commented on, in fact, are uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23. Uh, let me read them from the ESV. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many many are those who enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The Lord has now finished the Sermon on the Mount proper, but here he adds as a conclusion a few warnings and gives a few hints with regard to various offenses in doctrine and life, which his disciples are apt to meet with. Two ways are briefly sketched, leading from the present life to that beyond the grave, and the two ways are contrasted, either one being described by its distinctive marks and its end, 
The one way is indeed a common road. No one is excluded from it, but it is narrow with no room for frivolous liberties on either side, and it finally leads through a straight and narrow gate, which has nothing to commend it outwardly. Only comparatively few find this way. It is so untrodden that it may may easily be missed. On the other hand, there is a wide, broad, spacious, roomy road with many factors that invite that lead forward on that road, and at its end is a wide, welcoming gate. But this way and this gate, with all the qualities that commend them, with all the invitation to indulge in free, unfettered life of the world, leads to destruction. Its end is everlasting condemnation. There is no special warning necessary for the disciples of Christ. They shun that broad, inviting way as the way of the flesh, of the world, and of the devil. But the other way, which in itself offers no alluring promises, on which no noisy, jostling crowd beguiles the tediousness, nevertheless is the Lord's choice, for it leads to life, to the true life, to the only life worth living, to the life everlasting with him, whose way was just as much a narrow pass as a rocky defile, but he, but who has entered into the glory of his Father. Enter in at this gate is all his loving call. Conquer in his strength all weakness of the flesh. Overcome through him all assaults of the world and of Satan, no matter in what guise they may appear. The end is worth a thousand battles. Verse 15, the warning against false prophets. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. This shows one of the ways in which the disciples of Christ may be enticed from the narrow way to heaven, a fact which makes the warning necessary. Beware. Take yourselves away from, have nothing to do with pseudo-prophets, with false prophets. It is foolish even to stop and argue with them, for they are false prophets. They deliberately falsify God's word. They substitute their own lies and the wisdom of fallen men for the eternal truth. They come without invitation, without call. They make a practice of going to such people as are members of a church with the deliberate intention of coaxing them away from the truth. They are wise in their own conceit and in the forms of deceit. They come in a very inconspicuous manner, like a 89-year-old grandfatherly guy on a radio station. <clears throat> in the garment of innocence and harmlessness. They profess to have a commission from God himself and are adept at pretending gentleness. But their real character will show itself afterwards since they are by inclination and training ravening wolves. Their nature is to devour. They are greedy for money, ambitious for power, but anxious above all to destroy the soul. They are the murderers of the souls of men." The principle of testing false teachers and all frauds, now verses 16, 17, and 18, by their fruits you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. A significant point. Not only may the disciples of Christ distinguish these false teachers for themselves, but the Lord expects them, expect them, expects them to know them thoroughly, to understand them by making a study of their methods and their way of life. Christians are able 
They have the sacred duty to try the spirits, to examine and test the doctrine which is offered to them. They have an infallible rule, the teaching of Christ, the word of truth. According to this criterion, this standard, they should judge not only the doctrine, but also the works of the false teachers, which are here called their fruits. Men never think of collecting grapes from thorns or figs from thistles, They are not deceived by false resemblances, just as the botanist will tell at a glance the poisonous variety of beria or mushroom from the good. But even where so much botanical knowledge is not found, the good, the sound, the healthy tree is readily distinguished from the unhealthy, the degenerate tree standing in bad soil or no longer fruitful on account of age. All of these trees and plants bear in accordance with their nature— this test never fails, quote, as we perfectly know that a good tree will not produce bad fruit and that the bad tree will not, cannot produce good fruit, so we know that the profession of godliness, while the life is ungodly, is imposture, hypocrisy, and deceit. That's right. Um, <clears throat> Harold Camping has proven over and again to be a false prophet. He cannot bear good fruit. He's just full of hypocrisy and deceit. Verses 19 and 20. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits you will recognize them. So far as the test of trees is concerned, men's judgment in their case is so definite and absolute that they do not hesitate to cut down and burn a bad tree, knowing very well that it is beyond all possibility for that tree to bring forth good fruit for the next year. But this judgment will strike also those that are guilty of false teaching and living, whose fruits must finally reveal the condition of their hearts. Theirs will be the punishment of the fire of hell. In the meantime, the Christians must not forget their duty to test and examine the doctrine and the works of the false teachers, lest they become guilty of laxness in spiritual matters. No false doctrine or heresy has ever originated without having had this sign, which here, e here, indicates that they have produced other works than those that are commanded and ordained by God. Let him that wants to judge correctly do as Christ here teaches him, and take their works and fruits, holding them beside God's word and commandments. Then he will soon see how well they agree. Thus you have a sure judgment which cannot fail, as Christ teaches you to know them by their fruits. For I also have read up about all heretics and sects and have found that they always made and brought forth something different from that which God commanded and enjoined. The one in this, the other in that article, and one has prohibited eating of all things, a second marriage, a third condemned all governments or churches, and everyone choosing his own, I concluded that they all walk this same path. False discipleship, verses 21, uh, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. False teachers have been characterized. Spurious disciples are here described. Not all of those that make a practice of public confession are in truth confessors. They may try to cover their hypocrisy by publicly acknowledging and professing Jesus as Lord, thus apparently giving him divine honor and glory, which is implied in this appellation. But a mouth Christianity can never be a valid substitute for heart Christianity. 
The fact that the lips readily form the name of Christ the Lord, make a practice of repeating it, will bring no one into the kingdom of heaven, nor let him enter into the blessed communion of those that are one with Christ. Even a mere listening to his teaching with admiration and appreciation will avail nothing. But among those that profess Christ, there are also others, such as have received Christ in faith and have by him been renewed in heart and mind. They receive spiritual power from him continually and are thus enabled to carry out the will of the Heavenly Father in their lives. The performing of the will of God thus becomes the criterion by which the sincerity of their discipleship is tested. Christ calls God my Father in his deep humility. He is not seeking his own glory. He has the right to bear the name Lord and to demand obedience to his will. But he impresses upon his hearers the sacredness of the revealed will of God that should find expression in their lives. Verse 22, Christ's warning of judgment. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In that day, in the great dread day of judgment, when the thoughts and desires of mind and heart will be revealed, there will be many, a large number, that will make a plea in their behalf. They will point to all kinds of notable deeds that have the appearance of miracles. But whether this be prophecy, or whether it be the casting out of devils, or whether it be some other wonderful work, also whether the miracles were expressly made in his name and ostensibly in his power, all this will avail them nothing." Though they repeat the phrase, in thy name, clinging to it as a forlorn hope that might soften the heart of the judge, that very expression will prove their undoing, for he, on his part, also has a profession to make. Perhaps they are sincere in thinking that he ought to own them, acknowledge them, but he is of a different opinion. He finds it necessary to expose the hollowness of their confession." Never during their whole career, while they were deluding themselves and leading others into delusion, while they were using his name in vain in the attempt to promote their gain, has he known them. They have never become his intimates. Their hearts were always far from him. They had no faith. To him, therefore, all their works proved them to be workers of iniquity, having used his name without right or warrant in carrying out something which he had neither commanded nor sanctioned. Their sentence is brief but terrible. Depart from me. Be separated forever from the salvation, the glory, and the beauty which intimacy with me implies. For in blessed union with Christ, all is heaven. In separation from him, there is nothing but damnation. Yeah, I thought that was an important piece to um, take out of Kretzmann's popular commentary, and I think it applies here when we're dealing with Harold Camping and the Campingites. This is an unrepentant, unregenerate, this is not a Christian man, Harold Camping. He is a cult leader who is deceived and deceiving like you wouldn't believe. And, I mean, it's breathtaking, the hubris and the conceit of this man. He has been proven to be a false prophet on multiple occasions, and yet each time his prophecies have failed, he has changed his tune, reinterpreted his, uh, his mathematical equations into something spiritual, and now he's still at it again. And those who are following him are following a false gospel and a false prophet, and it doesn't matter that they're confessing Christ. They don't even know what the biblical gospel is because Harold Camping ain't teaching it to them. 
sad, sad, sad state of affairs. All right, we're up on our second break. I haven't even talked about the sermon I'm going to be reviewing here. We're going to be reviewing a conference speech uh, by Lisa Bevere uh, entitled Lioness Arising. Yeah, I, oh man, we did a, you know, we, uh, we did a segment entitled the same thing, Lioness Arising, where she was doing a radio interview with one of the gals from uh, Brian Houston's church uh, down there in, um, uh, in uh, Hillsong, Hillsong in, uh, in uh, Sydney, Australia. Well, Wait do you hear Lisa Bevere's Lioness Rising uh, Women's Conference speech. This one is jaw-droppingly bad, as bad as anything we've been hearing from Harold Camping. The parade of heresy continues unabated. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. This sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your, in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. All right, we're back. 
hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. This is not really a sermon, it's a conference speech, but I've got to warn people about Lisa Bevere. This is somebody who is just as deluded as Harold Camping. You'll hear what I mean in a minute. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is a conference speech delivered by Lisa Bevere entitled Lioness Arising. Uh, This is a woman who the uh, church needs to be warned against. Nobody should be listening to her. This was a speech delivered at a women's conference, you know. So you want to know what kind of um, speakers appear at some of these women's conferences. Well, if Lisa Bevere's on the docket, uh, don't be letting your wife out of the house. I know that sounds politically incorrect, but really, you don't want her to go to hell. Anyway, let me... uh, Kill the music. Without any further ado, here is Lisa Bevere from Messenger International and her women's conference speech entitled Lioness Arising. You are going to need a bendy straws, duct tape, a tinfoil pyramid hat. I don't even know if you need a Bible, but wow. Hang on. Here we go. The enemy does not want you to know who you are. He doesn't want you to know who you are on any level. And if I... Ha- on any level. Okay, well, hang on. Let me grab my uh, <clears throat> my wallet here. Who am I? Well, here's my driver's license. Let's see here. It says, my name is Christopher Rosebro. Yep. Okay. I Well, the enemy didn't succeed in keeping me from knowing that about me. Had to title this message. I would say, do you know how scary you are? Not how scared you are. A lot of you may know how scared you are. I'm saying, do you know how scary you are? Um, that's not an attribute I really shoot for. Um, because you are super scary to a lot of things and a lot of high things that are trying to war against some stuff. So I want to talk to you about... Try, high things trying to war against some stuff. Wow, that's profound about some stuff i'm a little bit random i believe you can follow just a little bit yeah follow me i believe you can and uh, i have uh, really been fascinated for the last two years and i'll tell you a little bit more why with the creatures of the lion 
and the lioness. And I have like tortured my family with DVDs and constant information about lionesses and lions. And, and every chance that I have, I like watch a documentary and I am the girl that used to almost cry when the lion would go after the zebra and take it down. I was always praying for the zebra. I was always praying for the gazelle. I was like, no, they're going to kill it. Now I'm like, get it. Get it? Because there is something fierce rising up inside of me where I want to see the body of God rise. Uh, wow. Okay. Rise up in strength. And so I had traveled all day to Florida because of a blizzard in Colorado. I had to overnight in Dallas. It took me two days to get somewhere that should have been a two and a half hour direct flight. But when you live in glacier world like me, that is what happens. And so I went to Dallas and then I went to Florida and I arrived in my winter clothes and I was exhausted and I wasn't speaking till the next morning. So I peeled off all my winter clothes, put on the robe, ordered a salmon and brown rice and plopped myself down in front of a TV and lo and behold, there is a lion documentary. I'm like, yes, they're going to eat and I'm going to eat together. I'm going to watch this happening. And so I turn on the TV, I'm watching this lion documentary and it was so amazingly cool because it was a resettlement of two lionesses and one lion into South Africa. And let me tell you something. It is the lionesses that position the lions with strength. Oh yeah, if you had any idea about this, you would handle the women in your life differently. The Bible says it's not good for a man to be alone, right? He doesn't say the man's not good. Men are good. Men are amazing. I have four sons, but there is something in the man that the woman can bring out that nobody else brings out. And God is wanting the men and the women together to come alongside each other and begin to multiply their strengths. Really, this is what God wants in, in lion fashion. You know, um, you know, here, here you're obsessing about lions. And First Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 6, kind of comes to mind. The apostle Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Hmm. And after you have suffered a, a, a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Hmm. You know, this uh, section of First Peter sounds like um, the exact opposite message of what we're hearing from Lisa Bevere here. A man is an X and Y. A woman is an XX. We are the X factor. I'm sorry, we are. But if you're broken and you take something that is one and you multiply it by a half, you do not get a whole. You get something fragmented. So women, I need you to rise up. I need you to be strong. I need you to be whole. Proverbs 14:1 says, a wise woman builds her house. So what does a wise man do? Builds his woman. If you want the women to... Yeah, that's not really exegetical theology there. Um, 
build your house, build your woman. Just build her. They're going into this resettlement, okay? And they collar, they put a collar on the male lion so they can track where they are and make sure they're okay. And they actually put two lions and uh, two groups of, you know, two groups of three in. And they wanted to see who would actually establish the first territory and then the, the one that wasn't as strong would have to go somewhere else. And, and, uh, you know, so anyway, the male lion had really done a great job establishing himself for two years. He had grown into sexual maturity. His mane was now full and they needed to get that collar off of him because the way they determine the strength between lions is lions look at each other and go, whoa, your mane's thicker than mine. I'm not attacking you because I'm worried I can't get my jaw around your mane. And so the mane keeps them from killing each other. They actually just eye each other and go, no, I'm going to just go back over here and inhabit this portion of land until my mane gets a little thicker. And so that is what they do. And so they knew that if they didn't get this collar off of this male lion, that there was going to be a problem and somebody was going to come in and take his territory. And so they come in with those big, you know, range roving vehicles and they've got like tranquilizer guns and they see the male lion and they shoot him with a tranquilizer. And he just kind of looks at him like, is that the best you have? I mean, he just like looks at him like, okay, now I've got some sticking out of my leg, but I'm still going. And he just keeps walking And they're like, okay, he is like super lion. We're going to have to shoot him again. So they shoot him again and they get him the second time and boom, he goes down. He's incapacitated, but he's awake. And they're all excited. They're like, okay, we're going to move in quickly before this wears off. And we're going to take off that collar so he can completely establish himself with strength. And they're moving in and they're driving. They were just getting ready to leap off the vehicle when suddenly the alpha lioness appears And she comes out of the brush and she starts to form a perimeter. She walks back and forth between the lion and the men with the guns. Like, are you kidding? This is my man. You will not mess with him. And she's walking back and forth, back and forth. And so they said, if we're going to get to him, we are going to have to tranquilize her. But they only had one dart left and they weren't sure if it was going to be strong enough and they were really worried they were going to miss. And so it was like this really tense moment and they, they shoot her because she weighs a whole lot less than they actually get her tranquilized, but she actually turns. She's so mad that they would dare to shoot her that she ends up falling on the dart. They go over to the lion. They cut off the collar. They go over the lioness. They got to figure out how they're going to get underneath her flipper, get that dart out and get out because the lion is growling over there. How dare you be manhandling my lioness? And when they get close to her, they figure out, oh no, she's pregnant because she's got a little thickening going on. And they're like, okay, we've got to get back into this vehicle, back in this vehicle. So they get back in the vehicle. They're all nervous. They're all stressed. They're all whispering. And then they start driving the vehicle away as fast as they can. And there's a sigh of relief. And the narrator says, it's a good thing we got out of there. Because there is nothing more dangerous than being in the presence of lions that are fully awake. And when I heard the terms fully awake and dangerous, I heard the Holy Spirit say, is my church fully awake? And is it? Really, you heard the Holy Spirit say that while you were watching a lion program on the Discovery Channel. Really? 
dangerous. Because what had happened with that lion and that lioness is they were completely incapacitated. They weren't moving. They could see everything, but they were not in motion. But the time was going to come when they were going to find their feet and they had to get away before that happened. I believe a lot of people in the body right now, you know what? They're laying down and they're awake, but they are not mobile. They have not found their feet and they are talking in their sleep and they are dangerous to actually nobody, but maybe themselves right now. And God is wanting to shift that perspective because the way he sees us and the way the enemy sees us is far different than the way we are seeing ourselves. See, I love what God is beginning to do on the earth. There is a shifting. There is a changing that we can't even explain in natural terms. And I love that God is actually asking all of creation to begin to declare his glory. What are you talking about? And he is actually using things a little wild, a little fierce, a little feral to wake us up. Uh, We're going to be woken up by something feral. I hope not. And to to explain that to you, why that would mean anything to me, I've got to take you back a little bit. When I was pregnant with my fourth son and I actually didn't know I was carrying a son, you know, what are the chances? You know, you have three boys, you think, okay, this one must be a girl. Plus, I got a bunch of call outs. People are like, you in the back. Thus saith the Lord, you're going to have a girl. So when I got pregnant. Um, yeah, if somebody was calling out, thus saith the Lord, you're going to have a girl, they were falsely prophesying. That means they weren't hearing from God the Holy Spirit. I assumed, you know, this is baby girl coming. And there was a night, and it was a night like any other. John was gone. He was traveling. He was preaching. And I was the mother of three children, five and under. That is a crazy world. That is a world where you don't even feel saved every night when you go to bed. You lay down and you say, oh, God, please help me. Please help me to be nice tomorrow. Please forgive me for all the times I wasn't nice. You know, God, I just, you know, I just, I mean, just, you know, John's like, people are falling under the power. I'm like, oh, that's not what's happening here. Children are vomiting and I'm changing diapers. You know, so that was my world. And when I was pregnant in that world, I was exhausted every night when I went to bed. It was all about just falling to bed. Now I read myself to sleep. Back then, I didn't do anything. I just, as soon as I got vertical, I was gone. And so I had laid down and I had fallen into this deep sleep like I did every single night. And suddenly I awoke and I was in heaven. And I was not like in heaven with God. I was seeing a vision and I'm going to just like the apostle John, you went up to heaven. So, uh, we need to add another section to our Bibles, uh, right after the book of revelation, the book of Lisa Bevere, the word of the Lord that came to Lisa Bevere. Actually try to express something to you that I have learned is almost inexpressible because everything here as solid as it seems it's shadow. It's shadow. Heaven is the substance. Here is the shadow. And we are living in a shadow realm. And everything that we know right now and everything that we value is shifting and changing. 
And so we have to actually get heaven's perspective because that is what is substantial. That is what is eternal. That is what is everlasting. That is what we belong. So uh, apparently, you know what heaven's perspective is, Lisa? Long to. We're children of heaven. Okay. So anyway, I was there and all of a sudden I found myself standing before a scene and it was a magnificent lioness and she was laying on her side on a platform that was just stunning. And in front of that platform was the word numbers and the Roman numerals X, X, three. So this is just like the book of revelation. I mean, yeah. She's ascended to heaven, and now she's seeing symbolical visions, just like the Apostle John did. Okay. And I saw this lioness, and I took it in, and I understood that she was not a statue. I understood that she was a revelation. She was so perfect. She was so magnificent. Her fur looked like combed gold. That's how concentrated she was. And when I took it all in, I heard a voice behind me say, with the birth of this son, you will awaken a lioness. I began to shake I was like, son, lioness, I'm a coward. What do you mean I'm going to awaken a lioness? I like dogs. I don't even like cats. What is this? I began to shake. I came out of it wide awake. It was morning time. I reach over. I grab my Bible that is sitting there right next to me. And I find this scripture in Numbers 23. It says, these people rise up like a lioness, like a majestic lion rousing itself. They refuse to rest until they have feasted on prey, drinking the blood of the slaughtered. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm almost a vegetarian. What is this drinking blood stuff? What is this slaughtering thing? This was 15 years ago. I'm listening to this. I'm thinking about this. I don't understand. And yet when I closed my eyes, I could see the lioness. I could see the platform. I could understand what God was saying to me. And God was saying to me, I'm going to give platform to women who are at ease with their strength and at rest with their power. Lisa, I need. What is she babbling about? By the way, um, numbers 23 is part of the narrative where we hear about Balaam. You're not familiar with the story of Balaam. Uh, it's worth uh, reviewing. Balaam, well, let's see if, where does the story begin. It, it begins in Numbers chapter 22. In fact, let's uh, spend a little bit of time reading the Bible because I don't think we're going to find out anything accurate about what God has revealed in his word from Lisa Bevere. Um, at this point, she sure is doing a lot of preaching about herself and she's supposed to, uh, you know, whatever, you know, awaken a lioness. But yeah, the numbers chapter 22 and 23 isn't about Lisa Bevere or waking up a lioness or anything like that. It's the story of Balaam. And uh, in fact, let me do this. If you have your Bible, let's start off in the New Testament because I'm going to point something out to you. The story of Balaam is one of these stories. Uh, that is used as an example of a false teacher that we're supposed to avoid. Somebody who um, has dreams and visions for money. 
you would. I think that's really the gist of what's going on there. But uh, if you have your Bible, flip on over to the book of Jude, the book of Jude. And uh, when you tell people to go to the book of Jude, you don't have to tell them chapter 3 or 4 or anything like that, because, well, there's only one chapter in Jude. Um, So let me read to you a little bit of a segment here. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Interesting that Jude is a half-brother of Jesus and uh, was an unbeliever in Jesus until after the resurrection. True fact. He actually thought Jesus was crazy. And uh, so what one of, the, one of the gospel writers tells us, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, um, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you were once full, you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And uh, the angels who uh, did not stay within their position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of fire. Yet in a like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defiled the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they they walk in the way of Cain." and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees and laid on them, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. By the way, the uh, the statement there, wandering stars, the reason why that's important, just in case you're not familiar with why that's an important thing, is that wandering stars are stars you cannot navigate by. You'll notice that the uh, when you know the the old seafaring uh, sailors when they were out at sea and away from the side of land, uh, they didn't set, set their eyes on uh, on Jupiter or Mars or even the moon. Those are wandering stars, wandering bodies. But they would use the North Star, the you know the the North Star as a as a point of reference because that thing didn't move. And so that's kind of the idea there. So anyway, Jude here talks about three types of um, uh, of rebellion: the way of Cain, who murdered Abel. Okay. Uh, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, which we're going to read here in a minute, and then perished in Korah's rebellion. I might cover Korah's rebellion in an upcoming uh, soon episode of uh, Fighting for the Faith, but let me read to you 
the story of Balaam. So you see what's going on here in Numbers chapter 23, and this has nothing to do with Linus's arising or anything like that, the way Lisa Bevere is telling the story. Numbers chapter 22. The people of Israel, now keep in mind, the people of Israel, they've been wandering in the desert for a long time. They're getting close to going into the promised land. Uh, so, you know, the uh, the inhabitants surrounding them are, are getting a bit skittish, if you know what I mean. So the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw, that all, saw all that Israel had done to the Ammonites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us, like the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So uh, Balaam is kind of like a holy man for hire, if you know what I mean. He's a, he, Consider him to be some kind of a, a spiritual uh, mercenary, if you would. Anyway, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. You know, along with the fees for divination. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Well, Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me, sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. It covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. So God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. So once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these, and they came to Balaam and said, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or to do more. So you, too, please stay here tonight that I might know what more the Lord will say to me. And the, and God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. 
Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with a staff. Then the Lord appeared, opened the mouth, sorry. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. Then the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all of your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, Well, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Notice, Balaam's ways are perverse before the Lord. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. And then when Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that is what I must speak. He's got the fear of Jesus in him, literally. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. And and Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal, and from there he saw a fraction of the people. Chapter 23. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height. And God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and he and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up the, his discourse, and he said, From Aram Balak, Balak has brought me the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom God has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling 
alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So Balak said to him, Well, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet with the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus shall you speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said uh, said to him, What has the Lord spoken? spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse, and he said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Now that little, man, it's amazing that God has a prophecy regarding the Messiah here. The shout of a king is among them. That is a reference to the fact that the Messiah himself is there in the camp of Israel, unborn in the loins of some of these Israelites. Amazing. Anyway, the and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and it, and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what God, what has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness, it arises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, and do not bless them at all. But Balaam answered, Balak, did I not tell you all that the Lord says to me, that I must do? Now notice here, the Numbers chapter 23, verse 24, is the verse, supposedly, that's the key verse in Lisa Bevere's speech here. And this is a description of the people of Israel, the people of God. Okay? This is not something that, um, you know, let's just say that God is not using this as a prophecy for how God's people have to rise up today like lionesses or anything of the sort. This was a description of the people of Israel. Behold, a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain referring to the fact that God is going to use the children of Israel to bring judgment against the Hittites, the Moabites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and and all the other people that God is going to bring judgment against when the children of Israel go in to possess the land that God has promised them. That's what's being referred to here. Okay, But Lisa Bevere isn't teaching the Bible. In fact, if anything, in, in you're going to hear her attacking the Scriptures here in 
shortly. Keep listening. Here we go. I need you to get out of your fear. But you know what? God will give us a vision and we make it about us. So I went out to lunch with another pregnant friend and another woman that I consider to be very powerful. And she said, I'm so excited about this baby girl you're going to have. Well, I said, you know, can I talk to you about that for a moment? Interestingly enough, I had this really random dream that I was carrying a son and like I might wake up a lioness. She just kind of looked at me. She was like, when is your baby due? I said, well, it, like October. And I think it was like April or March. And she was like, oh. There's no way you'd be a lioness by then. I'm like, I agree. I completely agree with you. Exactly. I am not a lioness and I am not a blood drinker. What is going on here? She's like, yeah, there's just way too many issues in your life. I said, I know there are way too many issues in my life for me to ever imagine being fierce. John is the fierce one. I am the one that breastfeeds our children until they ask me to stop. I am great with staying home and just, you know, doing whatever I need to do. She's like, yeah, you're, you're so not a lioness. I'm like, exactly. Well, I had gained a lot of weight that pregnancy. I had gained 52 pounds. I don't know. Yeah, that's scary. I don't know what that is in kilograms. I would prefer actually not to interpret it for you, but I had gotten so uh, large that my face wouldn't even fit in my driver's license photo. Um, I had gone, we have a wall you stand up against. There's a counter it's mounted on and they took my picture and they're like, ma'am, you have to turn your face to the side. We can't get your whole photo full face. We cannot get it all in. And then I had gotten a spiral perm to try to counteract. You remember that? counteract the largeness of my face with largeness of hair. And so anyway, I'd gotten in my car. We're living in Orlando, high humidity, spiral perm, fat woman. And I get in the car and I'm driving and my roll down my window because it's so hot at first before the air conditioning kicks in and my hair kind of kicks out the window. And I look in the little side mirror and I'm seeing my hair kicking out the window, catching a little bit of wind. And I'm thinking, Hey, maybe I want to be a lioness. I don't know why I didn't remember in that moment that the lioness doesn't have a mane. But anyway, I felt like I was a little fierce. I was like, maybe my issues are big, but maybe I can settle all those by October. How dare she say that I'm like going to always, maybe I'm tired of people making excuses for me. Maybe I will be a little fierce. And so you know what happened? I gave birth to my fourth son. I named him Arden Christopher, which means fiery, determined, anointed one. Something did happen in my life when I gave birth to Arden. It was awesome. My life opened up. I wrote out of control, loving it. My life went from being really small and controlled and contained and it kind of enlarged. And I was like, yay. Over the next, you know, couple of years, people would like occasionally, very occasionally, almost not even noteworthy say, oh, you remind me of a Linus. I was like, there you go. There you go. It's done. It's done. But two years ago, I was in New Zealand and there was something shifting in the atmosphere. And you got to understand these shifts, they're going to come closer and closer. Something shifting in the atmosphere. Hmm. Maybe it was sunspots. Yeah, I don't know. And closer together. 
We're in birth pangs. You cannot do what you did last decade. It will not work. It will not work. We're in a new time. And so anyway, the shifting was happening. It was coming closer. And I had to speak that night. And so I said, can I, I'm just going to go to my room and I'm just going to pray. And so I put on my iPod and I was dancing to shout unto God with a voice of triumph. And I just really felt like God said, cry out over the nation of New Zealand. I had this window where I could just stretch forth my hands over Auckland. And I was crying out to God and I had just gotten done writing nurture. And I, I have to be honest with you. When I am done writing a book, I actually hate it. I hate the book. By the time I sent it to the publisher, I am so tired of it. I was like, it's done. It's done. It's done. It's kind of like a labor process. I was like, God, thank you. The book is done. God, I don't want to write anything else for a really long time. And he said, I'm so sorry you feel that way. He said, because I am releasing strategies from heaven and they are found in my word. What? God's releasing strategies from heaven. Oh, okay. And you don't have all of them by any means, but I need you to describe the strategies of heaven that have been entrusted to you. Because if you do not bring your piece to the puzzle, then the other puzzle pieces will not fit together. Oh, all of the puzzle pieces of heaven and earth and all of the strategies that are not that are revealed and not yet revealed hang on Lisa Bevere. Right. And I was like, okay. Sorry, sorry, I said I didn't want to write again. And then he said, I said, with the birth of your son, you would awaken a lioness. I did not say you were the lioness. He said, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it is time that his bride awaken the lioness. And he said, there needs to be a fierce awakening of the people of God. You think, I, I, I don't, I thought he was like a shepherd. Oh, he was. He was a shepherd. But now he is seated on high. Uh, okay, watch this. Holy smokes, this is getting bad. And majesty. He is the king of the king, lord of lords. He's got a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I don't even understand that. He's got tattoos. He's got bronze sandals. He's got a gold breastplate. People that were cuddling with him at the Last Supper see him and are falling down dead. So this is not the Jesus walking on the shores. This is the Son of God Most High that wants to reveal himself as we walk on earth. Um, he wants to reveal himself? I thought he has already revealed himself. It's kind of a weird way to talk, don't you think? And in Revelations 5, it talks about the time, the moment when John the Revelator, he's seeing all these scenes happening in the book of Revelations. And what is the book of Revelations after all? But a collection of shocks. A revelation is a shock. This is not just an end time prophecy book because it says in the very beginning that the book of Revelations is a revelation of Jesus the Christ. What actually happened when he died for us? And there's a moment with all the scrolls are sealed and he begins to cry because there is none worthy on earth, none worthy under the earth and, and none it appears to be worthy in heaven to open the scrolls. And all of a sudden the elder says, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. He will rip open the scrolls. There is something that God wants to unseal 
in your life that will not happen with the revelation of who he was. So uh, God wants to rip open something new in your life that's not going to happen with the revelation of who he was. Huh. Hebrews chapter 1 seems to contradict what she's saying. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom... Also, he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Um, yeah, um, so we're just going to chuck out the revelation of who Jesus was. We're going to just throw out the Gospels here. Because God wants to rip open and reveal some new thing to us? Yeah, I don't think so. This is uh, Notice the despising of God's word here in favor of something new, apparently. It will only happen with the revelation of who he is. Which means we are going to have to begin to read the book of Revelations. And not let it scare it, but let it speak to us the mystery of God. What God wants to begin to do with us. God is wanting to awaken us to a place of strength and power. I was actually on the phone with a friend of mine right before I came down here. And she told me, her and her husband do a lot of traveling and talking about finances and the covenant of God with finances. And she had a meeting with a rabbi, not a messianic rabbi, just a rabbi that travels in the synagogues all out throughout the United States. And he told them, he said, I am praying and I am asking the congregations in the synagogue to pray that the Christians around the world will wake up to who they are. Because if the Christians do not wake up to who they are and remember who they are aligned with, he said, the Jewish people will have no hope. What on earth is she talking about? Now, the Jewish people are praying that we'll wake up. I don't know what it's going to take. What does it even mean to wake up? How are we sleeping? What are we sleeping about? I mean, what does it mean to wake up? And we're supposed to live and listen to a non-Christian Jewish rabbi on this who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah? What are you even talking about? This is actually nonsense. For us to wake up. But it is time that we wake up to the purpose of God, to the call of God to what God wants to do on the earth. Now, this is what I've heard about you guys. I've heard you guys are amazing. I've heard that you guys are the most generous, kind, gracious Christians. But you know what? I need you to add dangerous to that. I need you to throw that a little wider. Yeah, dangerous, yeah. Dangerous seems to fit Lisa Bavero, right? Spiritually dangerous, as in deceived, like ravening wolf, like wolf in sheep's clothing, like false prophetess, uh, relying on her dreams. Somebody whom the uh, Apostle Jude warned us about. You, you get what I'm saying? And I need you to add dangerous. You say, I, I don't know about dangerous. Well, let me tell you this. The children of Israel, they followed God for 40 
years in the wilderness, right? I mean, they tried to go in once and they were like, oh no, oh no, we're grasshoppers. And God was like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to take you back out until all of the fearful die off and the children you were afraid for, they're going to go in. Actually, it was the unbelieving, not the fearful. It was the unbelieving. That, that's another thing we just got done reading in the book of Jude. Yeah, let me read that again. Um, <clears throat> Jude verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Yeah, the ones who didn't have faith. That was their problem. Not that they were fearful. They were faithless. You get what I'm saying? Except for Joshua and Caleb, they've got a different spirit, so they can go in, right? Or you guys all know the story. And then they... Actually, Joshua and Caleb were the two of the 12 spies that were sent in who believed they had faith. You see, yeah, you, you, you just are mangling the story here. Are coming back, and they're getting positioned to go back in. They're on the plains of Moab, getting ready. To, they're gathering and they're pausing for a moment, and all of the enemy kings around them realize what they are before the children of Israel realize who they are. And so the king's Balak calls Balaam and says, let's curse them. And what happens? Balaam, he can't curse them. He begins to declare who they are. And that was the scripture. These people rise up like a lioness. They rouse themselves. You got to rouse yourself like a lion. And he actually says they have the strength of wild ox. There is man. This is diluted. No sorcery that will work against him. He begins to declare all of these things. He says, the shout of the king is among them. Do you remember that? But when you have followed a cloud and a pillar, just daily, day in, day out, for 40 years, you only see yourself like a sheep. And a sheep doesn't feel very fierce. See, we follow God like sheep, but we deal with injustice like lions. We get that fierceness going. See, God talks about himself as the deliverer in the realm of an eagle. I brought you out in eagle wings. But he talks about himself as sacrifice, as a lamb. When he talks about himself with majesty and judgment, he reveals himself as the lion. And this is what we need to do. We need to rise up and be a little fierce. So I began to study the different aspects of the lion and the lioness and what they do. And I actually focused a little bit more about a lioness because I feel so strongly about what God wants to do with the women. But let me just tell you a couple things. First of all, lions have no gender issues. The lions are not trying to be lionesses. The lionesses are not trying to be lions. They understand that both has their unique position of strength. Great. I'm so glad that we don't have lions with gender issues. That is so helpful. Who cares? I'm sure wombats and beavers don't have gender issues either. The lion has this amazing presence that says to hyenas, don't mess with me. Okay, he's got this mane that protects the pride from rogue lions that would try to come in and kill his children or take over the lionesses. Yeah, and elephants have tusks, so what? But I have to be honest with you, he's a lousy hunter. Do you know why? Oh, the very thing that declares him makes him overheat. 
when he runs for any length of time, he overheats. So it is not the lion who is the efficient hunter. It is the lioness. Oh, that's so deep and profound. And you know, cheetahs, they run at 70 miles an hour. I don't know if you knew that. In the animal kingdom, the lioness is considered the height of hunting prowess, not because it's stronger than the lion, but because it works as a team. Lionesses never hunt alone. They work together and each and every one of them knows their skills and their strengths. The older ones roar, the younger ones ambush. And we need to be people that understand that God is entrusting us with abilities that are uniquely ours. What does this have to do with what Jesus told us to do? I, Jesus didn't tell us to go hunting um, or to be fierce. He told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching everything that he's commanded. Um, he told us to go and um, uh, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Uh, seems pretty easy to me, and he didn't give that commission to lions, lionesses, beavers, ox, elephants, or giraffes. He gave it to human beings. You get what I'm saying here? And we need to be part of a team, not just our own. The lion is the best killer, no doubt about it. But we don't need just killing. We need some hunting. You say, well, what are, you, are we we're going to like go out and kill people after this? No, that's not what I'm talking about. We need to search out those that are trapped in dark. Because, see, the li- What? Yeah, ex- the, the, the real question. What are you talking about here? Um, lion and the lioness, they live in the light, but they hunt in the dark. And the church needs to be a people that lives in the light and they hunt in the dark. We need to live in the bright, open light of the day. But we need to go after what is hidden in darkness, those that are captive, those that are lost. It is not enough to be content. Can't we just, you know, go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and forget this whole light hunting darkness thing? I'm not a lion. I'm a dude. You know, you understand what I'm saying? To say, you know what, we're just going to be nice and then the rapture is going to happen and we're all going to clear out of here. That is not enough. There are captives to be rescued. There are orphans to be rescued. There are people out there that have never heard the truth that we know. And God wants us to be fierce with that. How can a creature that lives in the light hunt in the dark? How do they see? Well, the lion and the lioness have this amazing ability that only the cats have. They can take any light in their environment and interpret it to vision. Have you ever been driving at night and your headlines? Yeah, that, that's great for cats, but I'm a person. Um... Hit a cat. What happens to the cat's eyes? They glow. Why? They've taken the light in their environment and they've created vision out of it. Uh, no, actually, uh, last time I checked, God just built that into feline, you know, anatomy there. That's part of how their eyeballs are made. Um, they, the cats didn't do nothing. They just do what they're naturally able to do. If there has ever been a time that we need to be people that can find the light in the darkness and then create a vision. Yeah, well, your your speech here is full of darkness. If it had light in it, it would be actually proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins. 
So, yeah, since there's no light in this uh, sermon speech, whatever it is, um, let me shine the light of the crucified and risen Savior into this and basically tell you, repent, give up on all these false dreams and visions. And you're not even a pastor anyway because uh, uh, you're a woman. And just step off the scene and stop doing what you're doing because you're misleading people and you're pointing them away from Jesus rather than pointing them to him. For how we can rescue that, this is our time for that, okay? So we need to be those people. Strategic positions. Why are people even clapping for her? What does any of this even mean? Hunting together, understanding who they are. These are all things that the church should have already known. Since we didn't know it, we're going to have to make up for lost time. And there's a lot that we can learn, but there's a lot that God can actually impart too. God wants a people that are incredibly fearless, incredibly strong, incredibly powerful, incredibly united. And this is God wants people who are faithfully hearing and listening and believing his word. Faithful pastors who are preaching his word and proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins. Yeah, the stuff isn't hard or spectacular. We don't need any dreams or visions here. Just need to open up the Bible and start reading it and understanding it the way it was meant to be understood. Not too hard, you know what I'm saying? This is the generation that he picked us for. I really believe that we walk this earth in the last days. And God says in the last days, he's going to pour out his spirit upon all people. Not just nice people, not just church people. I don't understand that. Not just charismatics. God's going to pour out his spirit upon all people. And, you know, I, I, you say, what does that look like? It says your sons and your daughters, they're going to begin to prophesy. That means there's going to be people that are going to stand on earth and release the words of heaven. Well, we don't believe in that. I'm sorry. In the last days, God says. And when God begins to say something, it trumps what any of us think. And it says, your men servants. Uh, yeah, you're kind of misquoting something from uh, Acts chapter 2. Yeah, your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter 2. I mean, I'd... all right. <clears throat> Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And as, a, as the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing the Christians speak to him to them in his own language. And I remember they... What just happened is is that the Holy Spirit fell on the Christian church. They began preaching the word with power. And uh, not only that, they, they were speaking in other languages and proclaiming the wonders of God, okay? And, you know, as the, 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 basically, the, the Holy Spirit gave these uh, the early Christians here, the people in this upper room on the day of Pentecost, miraculously the ability to speak in other languages that they didn't know. This was a reverse miracle of what we saw happening at the Tower of Babel, okay? So they came together, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phygria and Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed, perplexed, saying to one another, 
What does this mean? But others mocked, saying, well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since this is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men dreams re- dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I shall show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the sun and the moon before the day of our Lord, the great magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be Saved. Now, notice that uh, Peter here is basically saying that Joel's prophecy was fulfilled then. And the whole, the kicker, the point of all of that is that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lisa Bevere here is hung up on, oh, everyone's going to have dreams and visions, and wow, I, what does that mean? No, the kicker is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who don't, won't. That's the point. She's totally messing this up. And your maidservants. Well, I don't believe in women preaching. Well, there's some women preachers I don't believe in either. But God says. Yeah, for you, like you, for instance, uh, the Bible actually forbids women pastors. And by the way, you you don't get to, oh man. Yeah, I don't believe in you because your words don't even jive with scripture one bit. In the last days, he's going to have men servants and maid servants. And there's some men preachers I don't believe in. Here you go. I'm not being a hater against the sisters. I just think we need to rise up and the women need to be women. And the men need to be men. And the mothers need to be mothers. And the fathers need to be fathers. And the daughters need to be daughters. And the sons need to be sons. And each of us need to have that place of strength. We don't need women acting like men or men acting like women. We need to find our strength. Yeah, um, that would be the Lord. And we need to stand in that strength. And we, we can't let anybody rob us of our identity. You know, can I just pause a moment? Every woman in here, stand up. Every, just stand up real quick. Every woman, every single woman. Quick, 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 quick. Come. The guys won't. Come on, we got to do this. Look at me. Your femininity is not a problem. You would not be more effective if you'd been born a man. God hand chose you for this moment in time to be a daughter of the most high God. And you must steward your femininity well. You must steward the heart of a woman, a heart of a mother, a heart of a daughter. You must begin to ask. Must, 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 all law, no gospel. I mean, yeah, I think it's a good idea that women be women and men be men. I think that's the way God intended it to be. This is not profound at all. Why on earth would I want to? Oh, man, this is ridiculous. Heaven for the things only the daughters, only the mothers, only the grandmothers would know to ask for. And stop asking the men to do what you are anointed to do. You need to rise up and you need to be what God has called you to do. Because God created the woman. The woman as an answer to the very first problem. That it was not good that the man be alone. It's time. You rise up and you be the answer. Well, I want my man to be the answer. The man is not your answer. Jesus is your answer. You need to get your life from God. I want all the women to look at me. 
You are an answer, not a problem. I want you to look at each other and say, you're an answer, not my problem. We- what on earth this has to do with anything in God's word? I have no idea. We need to stop being evil to each other as women. Is that understood? Lionesses hunt together. All right? Are you ready to see the widow, the orphan, and the poor restored on the earth? She stretches forth. This is something the women do. She stretches forth. This is our stretch before the pounce. Lions always stretch. Lionesses always stretch before the pounce. I need you to stretch. You are an answer, not a problem. I don't care what you've heard. God says you are an answer, not a problem. And if you believe you're a problem, you'll act like one. But if you get it, that God is shifting it and God has declared you are an answer on this earth. And I need you to be a solution to the problems that are becoming so overwhelming. Daughter of God, daughter of the most high, draw, draw from that well. Come on, be that answer in Jesus name. I want my hammer back. Um, uh, one sheep per household. I, it sounds like the same kind of stuff to me. All right, sit down. Sorry, I had to just pause and do that real quick. All right. So we need the answer of man and woman together. But often we speak directly to the men and we skip the women. And they have to strain to listen in. So I just thought I would take that moment and I would speak directly to the women so that they would know they are factored in. Okay. So I just had to do that. And I hope that was okay. All right. My, my husband is so cute. He's saying the men needed to hear that. Okay. So awesome. Why did that? Anybody need to hear it? It was complete nonsense. Um, Because Israel did not understand who they were because they saw themselves as sheep, just waiting for God to do something. The Moabites sent their sex religion in, according to Revelations, and defiled the whole camp of them right before they went into the promised land. And I feel like, once again, the enemy is sending this weird mixture of sex religion. And it's not really like, really literally a sex religion. Maybe there is one and I don't know. So it's just metaphorically a sex religion? about it, but, uh, there, there is a perverting of what is pure. There is a perverting of what is holy. There is a mixing of what is carnal with what is God's. Yeah. Like the way you're mixing truth with error, your dreams and delusions with God's word. Yeah. I completely agree. There's a perversion going on. And we need to be people that begin to sanctify ourselves. Forget about trying to sanctify the world. I just want you to sanctify yourself, begin to sanctify ourselves, to begin to use the word of God and begin to wash ourselves with the word and begin to rise up and be holy. Because what happens when the enemy finds out he cannot destroy you from without, he will destroy you from within. And so that is what happened with the children of Israel. They didn't know who they were. And in one day, 24,000 people were lost in a plague. You know what? We live in a big dirt ball. That's what the earth is. It's a bunch of seeds. God in the very beginning says, I'm going to just put all these seeds in there. 
If you do good, good happens. I said before you, life and death, blessing and cursing, choose life. Choose life. Why? So that you and your children live. God wants a legacy of life, not just survival, strength, not just escapism. And so we need to be people that on purpose, intentionally choose life for us and for our children. I was in a sorority. And when I was a pledge, I had a duty that I absolutely hated. It was called the wake up call. And what we would do is we all slept on a big sleeping porch and you were not allowed to have alarms on the sleeping porch because you know, they'd be going off every 10 minutes. And so what they would do is they'd get the pledges, get the stupid pledges to go in and wake everybody up. And I remember I would go in and I would have to wake up the person. What they would do the night before is they would put their name on a little tag. There were people that got up at 5:30, 6 AM, 6 15, 6 30, 645, 7, 7.30, you know, it just like went on. And you were responsible for getting your sister up and awake and moving. And I remember I would go in and everybody responded different to the wake up call. Some people you would wake up and they would say, yeah, yeah, I'm awake. And you would leave and you would find out they went back to sleep. Other people would cuss at you. Other people would get up really happy and go, okay, I'm awake. And they would get up and they would get moving. And you had to learn after a while who had a different wake up style because it didn't matter about the wake up style. I had to make sure they were out of bed. But the rule was I only had to wake them up twice. If I woke them up twice and I had verbal confirmation from them that they were awake and they cussed at me and went back to sleep, my hands were clean. And I feel like God is again issuing this urgent wake-up call. Well, actually, if that's true, then God's telling us to wake up to the fact that you're a false prophetess, a false teacher, and to throw you out of the church and not listen to you at all and get back to faithfully hearing what God's Word says rather than your dreams and delusions and, and lion metaphors and whatever. You say, well, what am I supposed to wake up to do? You know, here's the really exciting thing. When you wake up, you know. Some of them had classes to go to. Some of them had dates. Some of them had tests to review for. Some of them had tests to take. All I know is God said, with the birth of my son, I was to begin to awaken. Yeah, somehow I doubt that that was actually God saying that. You know, I I don't really see any good evidence to believe that was really God. There are things in you that need to be awakened. There are things in you that this earth has need of. There is things in you, men and women, that need to be carried in strength. I shared at last conference about if you want to develop strength, if you want to have muscle, not just look good in your clothes, but actually be able to carry some weight, you have to bear weight. I had been running around busy, busy, busy. Oh, that's profound. Busy, but not doing anything that developed muscle. I was actually burning muscle. And I find out that the church is really busy, 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 but we're not necessarily developing muscle. And God is. Put- what does that even mean? 
put us through a decade of let's do some weight bearing exercises. Let's locate where you're strong. Let's locate where you're weak. Let's locate where you're injured. Let's locate what is really going on here so we can rehabilitate you. But how many of you know the way you get rehabilitated is by putting some pressure against the weight? And where's my spiritual muscle and what does a weight look like and how do I do that? What are you even talking about, lady? God is asking us. Come on. Really, God's the one asking us to do this. Don't you think if God were the one asking us to do this, he would actually communicate in coherent language that made sense so we would know what God is asking us to do? Will you bear some weight? I need you to carry the load. Oh, no, my pastor carries the load. No, you need to carry some load. You Cue sappy music. You need to be able to be a weight-bearing people, which means that you need to realize that... Yeah, how do I do that again? God is not the one that gave you that spirit of fear. He gave you a of power and a sound mind. And there is a gift in you that the, the scary, I'm scared of what's happening thing is holding back. So, this is so convoluted. We're going to deal with that. I'm going to speak to that gift of God in your life. I'm going to speak to that. Spe- You're going to speak to that gift of God in my life. Really, it has ears, and you know. Spirit of fear in your life, and we are going to believe for a fierce release of whatever needs to come out of you. A fierce release of whatever needs to come out of me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know whatever needs to come out of me is, but I hope it is released fiercely. Yeah. Blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. I'm hearing words here. You know, I mean, serious. I mean, 4 plus 37 equals Twinkies. I mean. Because the outpouring of God's spirit is not speaking in tongues. God says in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit. Hello, we've been speaking in tongues for a long time. That's not the outpouring of God's spirit. Oh, I can't wait to hear what it is then. What is the outpouring of God's spirit? Please tell us. Well, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know it's... (laughs) I don't know. You want to know what it is? I don't know. That's apparent. It's way bigger than what I have seen. And so I looked at the definition of the word spirit. Do you want to know what the word spirit is defined at first definition? Uh, Wind? Strength. Oh, okay. Valor, virtue, chutzpah, metal. We need to be... Which word for spirit are you looking up there in the Greek? Oh, you probably don't learn no Greek, do you, huh? Haven't been to seminary either. Probably don't know the biblical languages either. Hmm. People with courage and strength. The outpouring of God's spirit brings courage and strength. What happened to Samson when God poured out his spirit on him? He ripped open a lion's jaw. No way. Wow, there's another lion. Pushed down a building. I don't know what the outpouring of God's spirit might look like on your life, but I know we need to throw it way bigger than what it's been. Yeah, yeah, Jesus said that uh, when he uh, sends the spirit, the spirit would uh, convict the world of sin and unbelief. So I can tell the spirit is working when people are brought to repentance of their sin and unbelief and brought to where they confess Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior and have repented of their sins and are forgiven. Yeah, that's 
I know for sure the spirit's working there, you know. As for this other stuff, I, yeah, I don't think so. Okay, so lift up your hands right now and say, Father, forgive me for being fearful when you called me to be fierce. Oh, brother, this is a prayer of repentance. God, you did not save me to tame me. What? You did not save me to keep me safe. You saved me to go into the darkness and recover what's been lost. Oh boy, all these women are following along. Good night. Father, you have not given me. All these lionesses are apparently arising now. The big lioness army of the Lord here. Spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I speak to the gift of God in my life. And I command that gift of God to come forth in the name of Jesus. Like that lion, like that lioness, I choose now to rise up. Boy, yeah, this is supposedly Christian teaching. I There's nothing Christian about it. Where's Jesus? Uh, what did you do with him? Did your lioness eat him? To rouse myself to a position of strength because this word has need of me. Because this world has need of me. Oh, man, talk about self-centered. Good night. All right, lift up your hands. Father, as a mother in the house of God, I speak to the sons and daughters. I speak to the mothers and fathers. And as a grandmother, I speak to the fellow grandmothers and grandfathers in the house of God. May this gift of God in your life come forth free, beautiful, strong, irresistible, strategic, enlarged. Father, I speak. This is just self-centered nonsense destiny into their lives. Oh yeah, you go ahead and speak some destiny into their life. That'll help them. In Jesus' name. Yeah, just slap Jesus' name on the back of it. Kind of like what I read in Kretzman's commentary regarding uh, Matthew chapter 7 there. Yeah, Lord, did we not uh, speak destiny in your name? Did we not speak to the lioness arising within? Did we, did we not uh, depart from me? I, I never knew you. This isn't Christianity or even something even remotely close to it. It has nothing to do with sound doctrine or what the Bible says or really what God has revealed. In fact, Lisa went out of her way to kind of take a swipe at what God has revealed and in order that we can look inside and see something different and new that God's doing. Yeah, this is... Um, yeah, lioness might be right. Lioness in the sense that our enemy prowl, you know, prowl, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Apparently, um, um, Lisa Bevere has uh, joined forces as, as the lioness to, uh, you know, the devil lion. Scary, frightening. And where was Christ and him crucified for our sins? Sound biblical doctrine? Nowhere to be sound. Nowhere to be seen. Yep. Yeah, if uh, you know anybody who's come under the sway of Lisa Bevere's so-called ministry, uh, you might want to reach out to them and uh, help open their eyes to her deception. Because this woman ain't 
preaching anything remotely from the biblical God. Mm, Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. We truly do depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions to keep bringing you this important radio outreach. If you don't already partner with us, we truly need you to do so. We're officially a third of the way to our goal of uh, of uh, 350 new crew members, and we really do need to uh, add 350 new crew members in order to uh, guarantee that we're going to meet our budgets uh, for the you know months ahead. So if you're not already a, m- a member of our crew, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Uh, click on join our crew. It's only $6.95 every month, and it's automatic, and it really does help us. And there's perks. You get it, When we publish books and put them out, you get them, you get them at no additional cost. When uh, you know, we offer limited uh, edition promotional items, you get them at a discount. Those, those are the things that we make available for our crew members as our way of saying thank you. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution or specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button there on our homepage, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what do you think? I, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.